You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, if you guys want to go ahead and take your seats and uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Verses 31 through 35, if you didn't bring a Bible, there are black pew Bibles there you guys can use. Um, But yeah, Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark uh, and considering uh, what it means to be part of Jesus' true family. Now, we studied this passage last week, uh, but we're going to do it again tonight. Uh, I've never actually done this before. Uh, I've never preached the same exact text two weeks in a row, but gave you two different sermons from it. That's a new thing for me, right? So buckle up, we're going to do this together. Uh, And by default, you guys should know that there's going to be some repetition from last week uh, as we walk through the text, because the text doesn't change, right? The exposition of a text is always going to be the same, though the doctrines or principles that we get from it, there may be multiple things there. The exposition is always going to be the same. Uh, but hopefully there won't be too much repetition. Uh, but again, there are going to be different points that I make from the text this week that I didn't get a chance to make last week. Uh, now, last week we really spent a lot of time considering these words of Jesus. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We really spent a lot of time thinking about that. Whoever does the will of God is in the family of Jesus. And that's a really challenging statement from our Lord. Uh, It makes us reflect on our lives and ask ourselves the question, do I do the will of God? And what is the will of God? Right? We saw last week that when we look at the totality of Scripture, uh, that we can really fit uh, into three broad categories what the will of God is. First, it's faith in Christ. The second is obedience to God. And third is repentance from sin. And all obedience and repentance, everything that we do in the Christian life, flows from that first principle of faith in Jesus. Our obedience is obedience grounded in love for God. From a heart that God has changed through the gospel to love him. And likewise, our repentance from sin is grounded in love for God. Because he has saved us from the wrath of God. So our repentance and obedience both flow from faith in Christ. Um, I'd like to take a second and just remind us all that Jesus was not saying that we become members of his family by our obedience or by our doing. Right? That's, That's not the case. We don't become members of the family. Rather, Jesus was describing what members of his family look like. Right? We join the family of God by faith alone in Christ alone. And even our faith is a gift from God. Right? He's the one who regenerated us, who brought us from death to life by sovereign grace. And all of our obedience and all of our repentance flows from the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts moment by moment. So it's by grace alone that we are members of the family of God. Um, but again, Jesus' words here teach us how to identify who is in the family of God. They teach us what genuine faith in him looks like, right? Doing the will of God is what characterizes the true family of Jesus. Uh, But again, this is a challenging and searching statement from the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, as well as encouraging, honestly, for the the person who gives good evidence of being in the family of God. Uh, But as challenging as this text is, and we really looked at that last night, the challenge there. Do you do the will of God? Do you have a right to claim to be in his family? Because where there is no faith, no obedience, and no repentance, such a person has no right to claim that they're a Christian. They have no right to, to, to believe that they're going to heaven when they die. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. The author of Hebrews says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Right? But as challenging as that text was last week, I think there's also much in this exact same passage for believers to be encouraged by. There's a lot. So last week we received the challenge where we had to ask, am I a member of his family? But now this week, if you belong to his family, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, I want to encourage you from this text. Right? I'm not, I'm not the mean old big bad Baptist. Right? I want to encourage you. I don't always want to challenge you. Uh, but tonight my goal is to highlight three things this evening. Uh, so I'm going I'm to divide this sermon up into three headings. And the first is this. I want us to look at the family bond that we have to Jesus as disciples. right? And it's rooted in his own example. 
And what I mean by that is we're going to look at how our relationship to Jesus in this family supersedes all other relationships or allegiances that we might have on earth, right? And it's a bond of love. That, it's love that binds us to Jesus in this family. The second thing we're going to look at, is my favorite of this sermon, to be honest, is the blessings of being in Jesus' family. Particularly, we're going to do a quick study on the doctrine of adoption. We're going to check out our family status as the people of God and all that comes with it. And I want to prepare you. These are blessings that have no comparison. They're beyond compare. They're amazing. And then thirdly, I want us to highlight the family bond that we have together as believers, right? If we're all in the family through Christ, and that means we are all related to one another. Uh, and I want us to check out the unity and relationship that we have to one another since we've all been adopted into this one big family through Jesus. Uh, so though there are definitely some points of application to be made uh, in these three points, I, I believe that we're all going to be blessed and encouraged as we look into these things. Uh, but may God bless us however he sees fit in our time together, right? He is good. He does good to his people. He loves his family. He'll encourage us where we need encouraged. He'll rebuke us where we need rebuked. He'll bring us to repentance if necessary. And he'll encourage our hearts if that's what we need. So with that said, we trust his grace. Let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And his mother, this is Jesus, and Jesus' mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our most gracious God. We come before you this evening as your children and ask that you would speak to us from your word. Grant us soft hearts, enlightened minds, and the ability to listen well so that we might take to heart what your word teaches us. Though we don't deserve it, God, for the sake of your son alone, we ask that you would bless us. Conform us more and more to his image. Teach us what it means to be your children and the implications of that reality. Please speak to us, Lord, and make us willing to listen. We ask for all this in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. All right, so let's get some context into this passage. Uh, as you all know, if you're, if you're a member here, uh, as you all know from the last two or three weeks, Jesus is at Peter's house. <laughs> right? You guys are familiar with this setting already. Jesus is at Peter's house, and a huge crowd has formed there. Right, Probably hundreds of people. And, and there are so many people gathered to hear Jesus preach and to be healed that they're gathered even outside the house. Right, It's standing room only in Peter's house. And Jesus' mother and brothers are there among the crowd. And you might be wondering why. Well, verse 21 of this chapter tells us why. It says, they went out to seize him, seize Jesus, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So Jesus' earthly family is there as Jesus is teaching and performing miracles, but they're there not to receive teaching from him. They're not there to receive healing from him, but they're there to try to take him back to Nazareth, or at least we can guess back to his hometown. And they're there to try to take him back by force. That's what that word seize means. Again, we can translate that to arrest, right? So they're there to take him by force, if, ne if necessary, back to Nazareth. And they were doing so uh, because they did not believe in him. Right? They did not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They did not believe that he is the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. Right? Later, they would come to believe in him. Right? At least Mary, James, and Jude would eventually come to faith in Jesus. But they don't believe in him right now right? because they're seeking to take him back to Nazareth. So just real quick, as a quick aside, uh, this doctrine that the Catholic Church has cooked up that Mary was sinless, well, right here you see she thinks Jesus is crazy, so not a believer yet. Uh, but anyhow, well, we could do a lot of the Marian dogmas at another time. Uh, these make me mad, so I just wanted to throw that one out to you. Uh, Mary needed Jesus just as much as everyone else. <laughs> um, but anyway, they thought he was crazy. They thought that he was out of his mind, and, and they thought this probably because he was stirring so much trouble with the Pharisees, 
right? And because he was so zealously devoted to his ministry that verse 20 of this chapter says he wasn't even eating. Um, but as I said last week, bottom line, they did not believe in him. And in their unbelief, they were seeking to take him away from doing his work of the Messiah. Right? They were seeking to help, or they were rather seeking to keep him from doing the will of God. So Jesus' earthly family was outside the house for all this, right? And I think there's something symbolic for us to see here. Uh, the unbelievers are outside the house, even though they're his blood family, while those who believe in him are listening to him with faith. And they're not blood related to him, but they're on the inside. Unbelievers are on the outside. Believers are on the inside. And they call for him. Right? They're trying to exercise authority over him. We talked about that last week. Whenever Mark uses that word call in his gospel, it's always someone exercising authority. Jesus called his apostles. He called his disciples to himself. Right? So they're trying to exercise authority over Jesus, which is a problem because Jesus is the authority. They have no authority over him. But they sent a message through the crowd that would have said, in essence, hey, Jesus' family is outside and they would like to have a word with him. Okay, they're calling for him. Again, they want him to come home to Nazareth. They want him to stop preaching. They want him to stop confronting the false religion of the Pharisees. They want him to stop telling people that the kingdom of God has come, that he is its king, and that he's the one bringing it in. In a nutshell, they want Jesus, I'm, I'm trying to make this clear, they want him to stop doing the will of God. They didn't realize that that's what they were doing. At least I don't think that they were conscious that that's what they were doing, because again, they think he's crazy. But in effect, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to keep him from doing the will of God. They were trying to get him to abandon his ministry. And his ministry was given to him by who? His heavenly father. It was given to him by God. And he cannot and will not disobey his father. So Jesus answers their call in a way that highlights his refusal to cease doing the will of God. Verse 33, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Who are they? What he says here is astounding, right? He doesn't have amnesia about who his family is. He knows who they are. He knows who Mary and James and Jude and all the rest are. But what he's doing is he's distancing himself from his earthly family. He's distancing himself from his own flesh and blood family, his mother and his half-brothers. The sense of what Jesus is saying here is that he has no real allegiance to them in the truest sense of the word. They would keep him from doing the will of God, and he cannot and will not abide that. So he must, at this point at least, part ways with them. He must disobey his own family in order that he might continue to do the will of God. And I want to make a note here real quick. This doesn't mean that Jesus disowned his earthly family in every way. Right? On this point, he had to go a different way. But this doesn't mean that he abandoned his earthly family in every way. He loved them. Right? As we talked about last week, in John 19, as Jesus is being crucified, he even says to the apostle John, Son, behold your mother. And he says to Mary, Mother, behold your son. He's saying, John, you take care of my mother after I've gone back into heaven. Right? So he loves his mother. He's not, he's not disowning his family in a final sense. Jesus perfectly kept the fifth commandment. Right? That's what I want you to see. He's sinless. He's not sinning here. Um, He's not being rude or dishonoring his mother. Uh, he's not being disrespectful or cold-hearted towards his brothers. Uh, rather, he's declaring that if he must choose between his earthly family and obeying them or obeying his heavenly father, he must choose God over his family. That's what he's saying here. And this brings us to our first heading. And that's the family bond that we have to Jesus as his disciples that is first rooted in his own example. All right, first, here we see how radically committed the Lord Jesus is to doing the will of God, don't we? So much so that he refuses to listen to his own family. And that's a huge deal, especially when you consider the first century Palestinian culture that they lived in. Family was all, right? You've heard of sometimes, fam sometimes cultures, Farhad's nodding his head, right? Farhad knows, right? This, this kind of culture, family is everything, for you to say no to your family or choose something over your family is astounding, right? According to his human nature, this could not have been an easy thing for Jesus to do. In his human nature, this could not have been easy. He would have wanted to, if at all possible, to obey his mother. And he would have wanted, if at all possible, to keep peace with his family. But when faced with the decision to obey God 
to obey his heavenly father or to obey his earthly family, Jesus will always choose God. He will always choose to obey God rather than men. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus is a fit savior for sinners like us, right? This is not the main point of the sermon, but I'm not going to not take this chance to talk about this. I cannot pass this up. It's like dangling raw meat in front of a dog. I have to go here for a minute. This is one of the reasons why Jesus is a fit savior for sinners. We need a sinless representative before God. God demands perfect obedience to his commandments. And that's something that we cannot give to God on two accounts. One, we're sinners through our first father, Adam. In the Garden of Eden, Adam represented all of his posterity, all mankind that would come after him in this covenant of works with God where God says, obey me and live, disobey me and die. And you know the story. Adam broke covenant with God. He sinned and made himself and all who would come after him sinners in the process. In Romans 5, Paul says, we sinned in Adam. So we are born guilty of Adam's sin. That's the doctrine of original sin. And since then, all of humanity is born sinners with Adam as our representative before God. We've all been born with hearts far from God, hearts opposed to God, sinful hearts inclined towards evil and hostile to God. As Paul says in Romans 8, 7, uh, the, the, the heart of the natural man, or the natural man is hostile to God. He will not obey him. Indeed, he cannot, or he will not please him. Indeed, he cannot please God. And not only are we born this way, but now we come to the second account why we need a new representative. We grow older and more cognizant, and as soon as we're able, not only are we guilty of sin by nature of Adam's sin, but we begin to commit our own sins. And God demands that we be perfectly righteous if we're to receive eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we need a new representative before God. Adam failed to obey God and instead did his own will. And we do the same. If you represent yourself before God, you go to hell because you've sinned. Born in Adam and guilty of your own sin, double guilty before God. Adam cannot be our representative because he is a sinner. That means that we need a God-given representative to obey God in our place so that through that representative, we can be counted as righteous in the eyes of God. We all sinned in Adam. We need someone that we might obey through. And God provided such a representative in Jesus. This all comes full circle now. Jesus always does the will of the Father. Always. Perfect in every regard is our Lord. He says his food and his drink was to do the will of God. He came to earth and took a human body to himself that he might be a representative for mankind like Adam was in the garden. And he lived a life not doing his own will, but rather to do the will of his Father who sent him into the world to save sinners. In his human nature, Jesus daily, by minute by minute, constantly submitted himself to the will of God in every conceivable way. When anything would have kept him from obeying God, even his earthly family, Jesus forsook it and went after God. He's completely perfect. We, we can't imagine this, can we? We're so sinful. To imagine what it's like to perfectly obey God every moment of every day. But Jesus was perfect. And as such, he is our perfect representative. And by faith in him, praise God, his perfect obedience is credited to us. So that we stand clothed in his righteousness before God. We are accepted by his life of perfect submission to God. Rather than our sinful life that would damn us. I couldn't help it but to go there for a second. He perfectly obeys God. And that's why we're here, by the way. It's not just that we might take information home. We're here to exalt Christ. So I had to take this moment to talk about our perfect representative, Jesus, right? who is our righteousness. As Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 33, God will raise up a branch from David, and his name will be the Lord is our righteousness. That's Jesus, our righteousness. But Christian, we, we see in this text just one example of Christ, our perfectly obedient older brother in the family of God. And real quick, whenever I call him our brother, I don't mean to say that he's not truly God, right? Some cults have taken that and twisted it to say that he's something less than God. Uh, rather, he is God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, the Son of God. But here in this passage, Jesus' own analogy tells us that he is also the older brother of those who believe in him. Read Psalm 22 and Hebrews chapter 2. You'll see where Jesus says those things. He is our brother. But this is the example that our brother and our Lord gives us. 
He sets the example for the rest of the family like a good brother does. Does he not? And that example is this. We are to always strive to do the will of God, no matter what the cost might be. In this event, we actually see Jesus himself giving us an example of what he demands of his own disciples, do we not? Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Not that we're to literally hate our family, right? That would be a violation of the second greatest commandment. That would be sin. But rather that we are to love Jesus more. That we're to die to our own wills daily so that we might do the will of God. And God's will is that we follow his son, Jesus. Real quick, here's a freebie for you. I love that Jesus never calls us to do anything that he is not willing first to do himself. We serve no tyrant king, do we? He never tells us to do anything that he will not first show us by example. Here's how we do it. We serve a king who sets the example for his own commandments by perfectly keeping them in our place first and then saying, go and do likewise. I love that about Jesus. He is no tyrant. But we must, if necessary, let all things in this world go. Why? Because we are to be loyal to the true family that we're a part of. Right? Because we are loyal to our Lord Jesus, our, our great older brother who has brought us into the family. In other words, our brother Jesus teaches us that being in this family is a binding thing. It's not something that you pick up and lay down at different times. It doesn't work like that. If you're a member of this family, you're bound to it. It's a weighty thing that we cannot shake off just because it is inconvenient or that times might get hard. We're bound to this family as disciples of Jesus. But it's not a slavish bond, is it, Christian? It's not a slavish bond. It's a bond of love. And how could it be anything else but that? Just just follow me with this. It was the love of God found in Jesus that brought us into the family in the first place. Is that not true? It was God's electing and predestining love that resulted in our being chosen to be members of his family. It was God's love that sent his only son into the world to live and die and rise from the dead in our place so that our sins would be taken away. We could be counted righteous by his work and receive eternal life. It was God's loving work of the Spirit that opened our eyes to see Christ in all of his beauty. It was by his love that we were given the gift of faith to believe on Christ and to be adopted into the family of God. And even to this day, Christian, it is the preserving love of God that keeps you in the family. What Christian in here could say that if you were left to your own devices, you would be a Christian tomorrow? You know your own hearts. It's by preserving love that we continue on in faith that we are preserved and kept in this family. It's love that brought us into the family. So it is a bond of love that we have to Jesus that makes us his disciples. We've been yoked together with him in a bond that originates in the love of God. So through Christ's work, our membership in this family now must take precedence over everything else in this world. Again, love changes us, does it not? Our hearts now beat with the cry that says, I must follow him. Why? Because I want to. I must follow him because I want to. I cannot help but to go after him. I want to do the will of God. I desire to be faithful to the head of the family. I want to live out my obligations as a member of this family. right? And and how could we not? Considering the kindness of God shown to us. But Jesus shows us here that even if no one else will, we still must follow after Christ as members of his family. No matter what the world says or does to us. And if I could illustrate this, uh, how many of you in here have read The Pilgrim's Progress? That's what I'm talking about. Like, Yeah, five of us, right on. Six of us. All right, I see the late hands. It's cool. Um, I'll buy you a copy if you don't have one or if you, or if you can't afford one. Uh, it's, it's the second best-selling book of all time aside from the Bible. That's not me just saying that. That is a fact. It's awesome. You used to have two books in every Christian household, the Bible and the Pilgrim's Progress. You need it. But in that book, the main character, uh, Christian, it's a work of fiction. It's an allegorical book. It's beautiful. The main character's name is Christian. You can see it's early allegory. It's kind of cheesy, right? Uh, everyone's name means something. Uh, but Christian is talking to his family, and he tells them he, like, he was born and raised in the city of destruction, right? 
And then he finds this book that tells him about a king, the king of the celestial city, and tells him where to begin his journey on the path to get to the celestial city, right, which is heaven. Jesus is its king. And he goes and he talks to his family and he tells them, I have a new king. I have a new home. I'm a sojourner. I have to go on this journey that I might go to my new home. I have to go. And he begs his family to come with him. This is one of the most heartbreaking things in this entire book. He begs his wife and children to come, and they refuse. And he basically says, even if you won't go, I must still go without you. This is discipleship. This is what it means to be in this family. Similar to our marriage vows, forsaking all others, we must go after Christ. Why? Because by grace and by the love of God, we've been brought into this family. And what else are we going to do? We must have him. It may cost us much, but to what are you going to compare being in this, in this family? Right? No matter the hardship or difficulty, it is worth the struggle and even the pain. Why? Because Christ is worth it. Knowing him is worth it. Walking closely with your maker as you were created to do is worth it. We, we live in an age, as, as with every age, where we are pressured to compromise many things and abandon obedience to the will of God. But we must not. We're members of this family, and we must be loyal to its head, Jesus, bound to him with cords of love. Well, back to our text. Continuing on with Jesus' response to his earthly family, he gives his spiritual family something to rejoice in here. Verses 34 and 35. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says that those who do the will of God are his family. Those seated around him that day, listening with faith. Those who are his disciples. Those who believe in him and trust in him and follow him in faithful obedience and faithful repentance. And what I mean by that is obedience that is full of faith and repentance that is full of faith. All of this originates in faith. Those people are his true family. And I like how it says, similar to chapter 3, verse 5, it says he looks about at them. He looks them all in the face. And then he says, this is my family. Each one of them, this is my family. Believers are his family. Hear me. Put a period on the end of that sentence. Believers are his family. No question. This is definitive. Right? It's a fact. Right? Just as sure as the sun sets and it rises, Jesus said this, so it's true. Believers are his family. His word is more certain than that the sun will rise tomorrow. Believers are his family. And Christian, this just described you. So here's an early piece of application. Settle this in your heart now and lay hold of this truth. You are a member of Jesus' family. Praise God. What a truth for us to hold on to in this life. You are a member of his family. And this brings us to our second heading, the blessings of being in Jesus' family. Christian, look at how Jesus claims you as his own. And let me hear, if, if you're here and you're not a, not a believer, this can be you. Everything that I'm getting ready to say can be you if you will turn from your sins and look to Christ and believe on him to make you right with God. Believe that he died for your sins and was raised from the dead on the third day and you will be saved. But Christian, look here at how Jesus claims you as his own in verse 34. Here is my family. Our English version puts an exclamation point at the end, and I like that. <laughs> Here they are. He is not ashamed to declare that you belong to him. He isn't ashamed to claim you before men, and he isn't ashamed to claim you before his Father in heaven. What, what a comfort it is for us to be able to see this from the text. So often, and look, I, I feel this way, so I assume I'm not the only one in the room because I'm not crazy. So often, I think that we think Jesus must be ashamed of us. We know our failures. We know our sins. We know that our hearts are not always tuned to his grace the way that they should be. We know our faults. We know everything that is wrong with us, don't we? You know you're, you know you're a sinner more than I know you're a sinner. Right? Even if I don't know you, I know you're a sinner on principle because the Bible says it. But you actually know your sins. 
You know all the ways that you mess up. You know all the ways that you're disobedient. And I think that in the midst of that, we sometimes think, Jesus may have saved me, but there's no way that he's glad to know me. You ever felt that way? He may have saved me because he is just so kind, but there's no way he's glad to know me. I must be such a burden. Put that away. Put that kind of thinking away. He is happy to claim you as his own before everyone. This is my family, says the Lord Jesus. These ones are my family. He's quick to own you. He's quick to claim you as his own. He's glad to acknowledge that you belong to him. And why wouldn't he be? And I don't mean that you're so great that why wouldn't he be glad? To, no, that's, that's dumb. You're not that great. You're actually not great at all. You're awful. Right? So am I. But why wouldn't he be quick to claim you? He died for you. That statement alone, he died for you. He died to save you from your sins. He redeemed you. He changed you from the inside out when he gave you the new birth. And day by day, from one degree of glory to the next, he continues to change you. You belong to him now. You've been adopted into his family by his blood. As Paul says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, you are his handiwork. Of course he claims you. Of course he's not ashamed to know you. He looks at you and says, look what I did. Look at what I've done here. Look at all of these done for you. He rejoices over you. He loves you because he loves his family. He is the perfect older brother. He loves you. That, that we are in Jesus' true family by faith in him reminds us of a doctrine. We're going to get a bit doctrinal now. And it's a doctrine that's become really, really dear to me. Uh, this past couple of years. It's the doctrine of adoption, and it's one that I think sometimes we glance over. Think about this. Just follow me if you think I'm making a stretch. Jesus says you are his family, but the rest of the Bible says you used to not be. You weren't always in his family. You were once alienated from God, a child of God's wrath, not in the family, but an orphan in the world without God and without hope, a stranger to the covenants and promises of God. None of us were, by nature, in the family of God. But now you are. Now just reason with me. If someone is not naturally part of a family, but then becomes part of a family, that means that they've been adopted. They've been adopted. Galatians 4, 5 says that we have received adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 5 says, in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We are now sons of God, children of God. And women, you should actually want to take the title sons of God. That's how God describes you. And why do I say sons? Because sons get the inheritance, right? So we are all sons of God. We are all in the family through Jesus, not through ourselves, not by our own works or anything that we can merit before God, because who, who will make God their debtor? To what will you give God to make him owe you anything? It's not by your works or anything, but by Christ you are now adopted into this family. And there are blessings that now belong to us because of this adoption. Blessings that are now ours because we are in the family. And I want to read something to you. Uh, it's from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 12. I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's one paragraph and one sentence, actually. The, the Puritans knew how to write a good sentence, I'll tell you that. Uh, it's a good one. Of adoption is the name of the chapter. All those that are justified, that's declared righteous by God, these are saved people. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed, this will be the last thing I have to explain. Vouchsafed means he graciously gave, graciously promised, right? So let's do that again. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, 
protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father, that's disciplined by him as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's beautiful. It may have been written in 1677, but that is awesome. That's a beautiful summary of this doctrine of adoption. And I just want to highlight a few of the things mentioned in this paragraph. I might have to cut some of them short. But the first thing, this paragraph says that God is your father. Adoption is sons. That means he is your father. And because of that, you have access to the throne of grace with boldness. That doesn't mean arrogance. That means God beckons you to come. Imagine this. How fanciful does this sound? But it's true, Christian. The king of all the universe who sovereignly rules over everything, who dwells in light which no man can approach, is your father and says, come. Come. Tell me what you need. Like the prince of a king would not be afraid to wake his father up in the middle of the night for a glass of water so you can approach the throne of the God of the universe and ask him to help you. And yes, I just stole that quote from Tim Keller. You can approach God with that kind of boldness. Like you would go to one of your earthly parents if you had good parents or whoever it was that raised you. Will you help me? I can't do this by myself. Help me. And what do they do? They answer you in time of need and they help you. Why? Because you're their kid. That's the kind of access you have to God that you might call him Father. Abba, Father, my dad, help me. And he'll supply you with whatever it is that you need. And that fits into the provided for that we read, that all of your needs are met to live a full life of godliness and faith. He might not give you everything that you want because a good parent will never give their kids everything they ask for because you'll kill your kids if you give them everything that they ask for. A good father that God is, he says, I'll give you everything you need to live a life that pleases me and I'll, I'll provide for you in every way that you need. The second thing, and I put this in bold because you've got to know this, we are pitied by him. My favorite line is pitied, protected, and provided for. It says you are pitied by God. What does that mean? He shows you mercy. Like a child. I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw where this, this friend of mine posted a video of this baby that was born like a couple of months early, I think. A month and a half, two months early. It was like a one and a half pound baby with tubes his nose and tied down to the bed so that he can't move and his mother's there and she's cooing over him and his eyes are shut it's the saddest thing in the world and what happens whenever we see something like that your heart melts and goes out to this kid and you experience what pity god looks at you like that <laughs> parents whenever one of your kids falls down and they hurt themselves and they start to sob. You have pity on them. God pities you, Christian. He doesn't look upon you with disdain. He looks upon you with mercy. Because you're his kid. He loves you. I'll have to skip a few of them. The next to last one. Not only does he pity you and show you mercy when you fail and mercy in every other aspect of your life, but you are never cast off. <laughs> I like that. It says he'll discipline you because you're his kid. And Hebrews says every legitimate child of his, he disciplines. Which means you do dumb stuff. He convicts you, lets you feel the weight of your sins so that you might be brought to repentance. And praise God for the grace of conviction to bring us to repentance or we would fall away. But we are never cast off. Get this into your head. A son is a son is a son is a son. My mom's not up here, but I did some awful, stupid stuff growing up. I still do from time to time, just not as wicked, I don't think. Um, I was never not her son. Never not her son. 
you, an adopted child of God, are never cast off. No matter what you do, a son is a son. He loves you. Don't get me wrong, believers, we must persevere. But in the midst of your sin, you are never cast off from the grace of God. He loves you. He set his redeeming love upon you. He has put his seal upon you when he put the spirit of God in you that you might receive the last thing, the inheritance. You will inherit the promise as an adopted son. You will inherit it for certain. What is the inheritance? Eternal life with God living with him face to face forever. It is in stone the moment you were adopted. He says, I have an inheritance for you. You could put it this way. You know how whenever someone dies, they leave behind an inheritance? Your older brother died for you, and in doing so, left you an inheritance. Jesus left you the inheritance of eternal life. And you will receive it because you're a member of the family. Now, this is just a few of the things that we could talk about, but time will not permit it. But all of these blessings belong to us as adopted members of this family because we're part of the family of Jesus Christ. All of these blessings come to us through Christ himself. Our confession says, God vouchsafed, he graciously promised and gave all of these things in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. Not for your sake. You are the recipient, but it's not for your sake that you receive these things. What a shaky ground that would be if it was for your sake you received these things. You know that you're never able to merit these things. You're never going to be worthy of these kinds of blessings, but they come to us for Christ's sake. And that's some solid ground for us to have confidence, hope, and a rock-solid assurance because he is worthy of all of these things, and through him we receive them. To what will you compare being in this family? You can't. You can't. Praise God. But last, now we come to our third and final heading, and I'll try to be brief. We come to the family bond that we have as believers. All those who have come to faith in Christ are part of this family. Right? We've all been adopted together into the family. This means that we are all family to each other. That's why the New Testament constantly calls us what? Brothers and sisters. Think about it. We have the same heavenly father. We have the same older brother and Lord. We have the same indwelling spirit. We live by the same book. We all strive to honor the same triune God. We've all been baptized into the same name. We all come to eat and drink at the same table. And we all share the same goal. To honor God. To see people come to know him. And to one day see him face to face in glory and live with him forever. Just like under the old covenant, you could look at people who were the ethnic descendants of Abraham, right? His physical seed, offspring according to the flesh. And they were brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and mothers and fathers and all that under the old covenant. So also under the new covenant through Christ, we are all spiritually family to one another. You see how the old covenant set us up for a new covenant truth. Family there, literally, family now, spiritually. One big family, one church, one body with Christ at the head. And in reality, we are closely knit together. We don't need, just hear me on this, we don't need to strive to be a family because Christ has already made us into a family. Now we just got to live that out, right? Like, it's already a reality. You don't have to try to become family with one another. You are. Now it's a matter of us living it out, living out our family bond. Christian, do you realize that you have more in common with the people sitting in this room than you do with any unbeliever who shares every other interest in the world that you have? We don't think about it like that, but we do. You share a common salvation a common heavenly home that we're going to all inherit someday, a common hope in Christ, a common worldview, if your worldview is biblical, a common worldview, a shared love for the Lord Jesus. We all share the same deepest heart's desires as the people of God that we would be free from sin and live a life of righteousness to Christ. We are all one. I want you guys to know that. I don't know how really, as I, was, as I was writing this, I don't really know how to get that across to you, the unity that we have as a family, but I pray that you guys would see one another as brothers and sisters and each one dearly beloved by God, 
Remember everything that we just said, how you were soaking up all that adoption stuff? That's not just for you. That's for your brothers and sisters who are sitting around you as well. Each one of you, a family member, dearly beloved by God. I'm not ridiculous. I, I know that not everyone always gets along. I, I know that we give offense to each other from time to time. By the way, if you're ever in a church where no one offends anyone ever, then they don't know each other. Um, it's, it's true. You don't fight with your crazy uncle that you see at family reunions once a year and you avoid. Right? You're like, all right, Fred, stay over there. I don't have a family member named Fred. Don't worry about that. But I know that not everyone gets along. I know that we give offense to each other from time to time. Sometimes we don't share the same interests, do we? Not only that, but we're not all at the same stages of life. But we are united together in a common bond of love to Jesus. Christ has taken the many and made us one. Paul says so in Ephesians 2, one in him. So we must be committed to seeing that truth and living it out. I pray that God would help us to see what he sees when he looks at us, a family. But this means that just like with your earthly families, we each have familial obligations to each other, right? Obligations of love and service and mutual encouragement. Obligations to strengthen one another and care for one another. Uh, let me highlight some of these things from the scriptures. Um, it's been 45 minutes. You'll be cool. I, I say it every week. You've watched Braveheart. You'll be all right. Um, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 and 14. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3, 17 and 18. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Romans 12, 15 and 16a. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6, 10. Those are just some of our duties as the family of God to each other. We are to care for, encourage, build one another up, use our gifts for one another's good, admonish each other, bear one another's burdens, rejoice and weep with one another, help one another, love one another, do good to one another. And I think we all know that. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, right? You're not dumb. At least, like, we understand in our heads that this is how we're supposed to treat one another. We recognize that this is the call of God upon his people. But brothers and sisters, let me put this to you. You cannot live as a family if you do not know one another. You can't. And when I say know each other, I don't mean shaking someone's hand on the Lord's Day and saying, what's up? That's not knowing someone. You can get that at, like, the parent-teacher organization stuff at school. Those people don't care about each other. No offense, teachers, they just don't. I mean really know one another. That's what I'm talking about. That's the first step in living our lives as a family. We have to be involved with each other. We have to be in one another's lives. And I, I'm not a fool. I recognize that life is busy. I know most of you have children and jobs and all kinds of obligations. Days are short. They seem to get shorter all the time. Months fly by, right? It's almost Christmas. It's ridiculous. But in, it, but in the midst of all that busyness, I fear that we don't take the time to actually connect with each other and know each other. And I'm not trying to be unrealistic. I'm not saying that we have to constantly be together all day, every day. But Christian, do you really know your fellow church member? Members, I should pluralize that. There's 37 of us in this church. I know you all don't know each other. For real. You know each other's names. I'm not just here to like point the finger and be like mean or anything, but it's just being honest. Like, Do, do you ever try to reach out to one another and, and spend time together? Like, that's how this starts. 
right? You are a family living it out. This is how it starts. This is how you begin to live a life together. This is how you begin to fulfill these obligations that we have as a family. And I'll be real practical with you. This might start with a text or a phone call, a Facebook message, a talk after church is over, inviting your fellow member to come into your home for dinner or to a bonfire or whatever it is that you guys do, inviting someone to go with you somewhere, like an outing. Yes, I use the word outing because we're a church and churches have outings. I don't, whatever. Um, But we must know one another in order to live together. We're a family. Right? How sad it is to think that we have family that we don't cherish. But brothers and sisters, we cannot neglect one another. Please hear me on that. We cannot neglect one another. We cannot neglect even one for whom Christ has died. They are all precious to him. And we ought to value them as well. Adoption didn't just happen to you. It happened to every other believer. He's brought us together that we might live out his love for us and how we love one another. And that's says Jesus, how the word or the world will know that we are his disciples. That we love each other. But in conclusion, my brothers and sisters, we belong to one family. With God as our father, Christ as our brother, and one another as siblings. We are bound to Christ in discipleship as members of this family, forsaking the world that we might honor our status as family members given to us by God, We are sons and daughters of God, adopted into God's family through Jesus and by grace as much sons of God as Jesus is himself. We share innumerable blessings that come with our adoption. And as one body, we are bound together to Christ and to one another with bonds of love that this world cannot explain nor compete with. God has loved us and blessed us beyond our wildest imagination. May we praise him all of our days for bringing us to Christ and making us members of his family. Psalm 98, verse 1, I'll close with. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the words of our Lord Jesus here, that in one sense can challenge us deeply, uh, but God, in another sense, Encourage us greatly. Lord, we stand in awe and with hearts of joy and tears of joy that you would make such sinners into your sons. And that you would take people from so many diverse backgrounds and make them one. Make them one family. God, I pray that as we rejoice in you and praise you for our adoption that we would become devoted first off to Christ in our discipleship, but then as a result of that, that we would become devoted to the welfare of one another, that we would become devoted to living out what it means to be family. So God, to that end, I pray that you would help us to actually know each other, to go out on a limb and actually interact with one another. Drive it into our hearts, Lord, that we are not the only ones who have been adopted. It's not... Jesus died for me only. It's Jesus died for us. You've not adopted me only, but you've adopted us. God, drive that into our, whole, our hearts that we might be changed by it. But Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.